Karen Shaler was a TV reporter and war correspondent who is now a successful screenwriter and novelist. She created the popular Audible original called Once Upon a Christmas Carol and is best known for the popular Netflix feature A Christmas Prince. This is from a live stream that we did. It's such a balance at Christmas and when you talk about one of the hardest times of year, that's something that I've really taken to heart because I don't think it can just be all sugary, sweet and, and fun. I mean, I read Christmas books and watch the shows to escape reality. I don't want, you know, heartache and doom and gloom, right. but I still want it to be realistic. And, you know, we've all lost somebody and Christmas time is a really hard time of year for that. So I wanted to honor that, but still find the joy and find a way that maybe it could give people some hope when they're reading or some ideas of ways that it doesn't have to be so hard and yeah. you know, bring in the humor and the joy. And I think Christmas is just, it's a magical time of year. And you know, people say those Hallmark movies and, and these books are corny or super sweet. And I'm like, and I'm down for it. Why not? Don't we all need that? And it's funny when I wrote my first movie, A Christmas Prince, I wrote it because Hallmark, that's where all the Christmas movies were. And I wrote it in that genre, you know, that very uplifting, feel good, clean, family friendly, type of a novel. And then that story, Christmas Prince, ended up going as Netflix's first original when they started you know, going into original content. This was their first original Christmas story. And so, you know, it's fun because I think that you can bring the heart and that's the, the fun as a writer. And you can kind of blend all of those. And I think being a journalist, you know, our background, Margaret, as journalists helps in our writing, right? Everything yeah. that we have is kind of like tools in our, you know, toolbox when we want to tell, even if it's a silly romantic comedy or something fun, we can still bring in that humanity and experiences and make it real. Because I just want people to feel something. I want people to feel the joy. I have people that say that they read my very first debut, um, novel was Christmas Camp. And that was also from my first Hallmark movie. I wrote the Hallmark movie first, kind of backwards from what most people. And people say that they read it as a tradition every year, like watching Home Alone or something. And that, you know, as an author, that can't be a bigger compliment, you know, to say it, that's somebody's Christmas tradition. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of weight when I write Christmas. I feel like it's a big responsibility. I'm not going to just phone it in, not that I would on anything that I work on. But I do feel like this is a very uh, magical, spiritual, wherever you're coming from in the world. But the other side of it is it can also be very hard and lonely and challenging. And so you have to find a way to blend all of that and try to connect with people. And hopefully the book, you feel like you have friends and you feel like, okay, for that bit of time, I was taken away somewhere. But I just want to talk about your journalism career because you were, what's incredible is you covered war and a lot of horrible things for TV and now you write the opposite. You write really feel good stories. So what was your experience as a media person? You know, there's no coincidence to that. You know, um, I think that just what we talked about where when I was in war zones and I was doing some of the most difficult stories, um, my escape was to watch uplifting feel good movies. I didn't come home from war zones and watch war content. When I was a crime reporter, I wasn't watching the police procedural shows. I didn't last thing I wanted to watch. I was living that life. I wanted to watch the romantic comedies and things that, you know, took me away from that world, but you know, I always wanted to be a storyteller from the time, you know, I was teeny tiny. And I remember my mom and grandma were big readers of novels. And I thought, oh, that'd be fun. But when I was young, I, I was writing stories in school, but I would get A for originality, but I'd get marked down because I would miss a comma or I'd miss punctuation. And I remember I got a C minus once and I was one of those overachievers. I was really upset because I had missed two commas. Now we all know the importance of good punctuation right. when you're a kid. 
And I said, this is ridiculous. And I also had this kind of, even as a young kid, I kind of, I say I came from nothing and nowhere. You know, it was, it was just my mom and I, my dad wasn't really in the picture when I was growing up and she was a public school teacher, you know, so we struggled, we didn't have a lot. I mean, and so I didn't have any connections or, you know, and no brothers, sisters, you know, only child. And I felt like if I'm going to write these amazing stories that I would go to the library and read to get lost in, I need to go somewhere. I need to do something. And so I decided a journalist was smart because as a TV reporter, I had to say it. But back in the day, we weren't writing content for online, right? We just said it. I'm done. Nobody saw my copy. And as long as I said it right, you know, and I did talk slower. I did take the comma pauses. I did. I think I had, <laughs> right. they, they made me. But that's really what it was. And I really had this like yearning when I think I was 11 or 12. I wrote in my dear diary. Yes, I did that. And saying I wanted to go to third world countries. I wanted to be a war correspondent. I wanted to tell stories of the people that didn't have voices. So I wanted to do that from the time that I was so small. And so, you know, I, I get my way into journalism and, you know, get my first job in Billings, Montana for $9,600 a year. So I graduate with two majors, you know, all of that. And I remember there was thousands of people up for the job. So I was so lucky that I was offered this opportunity. And it was that way. I mean, I didn't make $30,000 until I was 30. I remember a, a boss asked me once, he said, what do you want? And I said, a couch, because <laughs> I was 29 years old and I didn't have a couch. Plus I was moving every year. I lived in 12 states. So Montana, Idaho, Minnesota, I mean, I could go on, you know, as a TV journalist, you move up, you start in small markets, but I was seeing the world. I was seeing people. I was learning about different cultures. You know, when I was in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, I went to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, one of the poorest Indian reservations in the country. And, you know, everywhere I went, when I'm in, in Arizona and Texas, I would go down and do a lot of the stories on the Mexican border. So I felt like I was dabbling in it. But to be able to, you know, fast forward to what you're talking about, I finally got to achieve my dream of being a war correspondent when I decided, okay, how am I going to do this? You know, I'm not on network news. How am I going to do it? And I thought it's always about connections. And so I was in Salt Lake City, Utah at the NBC affiliate. And I found out that there was a small unit, you know, of army reservists, you know, we called them the weekend warriors back in the day. And they were being called up to go into Bosnia. And it was when President Clinton said, we're calling in peacekeeping troops. It wasn't called a war. And I remember it was December 19th. It was my birthday. And I thought there's like 18 of these people in good old Salt Lake City. And they were public affairs, meaning they did PR for the army. So they were going to go and they thought we're going to just be in this nice, you know, place. And, you know, this will be good for a journalist. It's safe, you know. And I remember my boss didn't want me to go. Nobody wanted me to go. But I just did all the work, got connected with the army and the folks that were going and bottom line, like drove, shoot, showed up in Germany, found them, got transport. I mean, I'm just very tenacious. But all of that said, I mean, I was embedded with that troop for a month. And I got to tell the soldiers stories. So I, back in the day, it was like Private Benjamin for people old enough to know what I'm talking about. The Goldie Hawn movie where I show up, I had sh a lot shorter hair, but down to the underwear, I had to wear all military gear for protection. My photographer and I did. So when we were there, that way we didn't stand out, which was much different when I, than when I was in Afghanistan, where it was the opposite because there was such a large bounty on a journalist's head. We could not be dressed like um, embedded journalists, like our um, troops, because it caused them too much potential problem. So we had to wear civilian clothes. And that was when I was embedded with an Apache helicopter unit. It was 2017. I was in three different places around Afghanistan. This was, you know, combat areas. Um, you know, that was life changing. And it was 
The same though, where I was focusing on human stories. But when I was there, there was a bombing at one of the main bases. And I remember I was doing a live shot and I'm standing, meaning I'm standing out there ready to do my little live report. And all of a sudden I remember seeing this wave, you know, I, and, and then I heard the boom, but I saw there was like a heat wave, you know, and by the way, this was like, you know, winter. And it was this weird kind of a, I can't even explain, I guess, you know, people will know because it was an explosion. And so there was this wave and then boom. And my photographer was in a building. I'm standing outside the building. He was doing the technical part. So he's doing the satellite and doing all of that so I can be live. So all I know is it comes over the loudspeaker. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. You know, mass casualties, you know, da, 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 da. And I just remember thinking, of course, journalists, wait, is this a drill? Like, is this what they say when they do the drills? And all of a sudden it was chaos. Like everyone started running. And I'm just like by myself. So of course I follow and I tell people I was in a bunker for an hour and a half during, you know, this alert and the bunker wasn't underground and the bunker wasn't, you know, what I felt was safe the day before it's basically like concrete on the side of the road with sandbags, you know, put up and it's open like an open big pipe. So you're kind of like in there like this and you see people walking back and I mean, not walking, running guns, smoke. And, you know, you're just like, and I, what happened was I was with, it turns out I was with a bunch of really, really young soldiers. And what they started talking about was if I get out of this, okay, I'm going to take my wife on this trip. I am going to take my child to Disneyland. They were, I call them, I've talked about this. I call them someday trips. For some reason, everyone started talking about the things they were going to do that they hadn't done, that they had promised themselves that they would do. And I had always used travel as my therapy. I would be in these war zones. I'd cover these really difficult stories and I'd come home kind of like escaping into what we're talking about, these Hallmark movies. I would go somewhere and I would just disconnect. And I didn't ever have a lot of money, but you know, you could save up and go to Bali for $600. I remember I took some crazy charter out of LA called Garuda Indonesia or something. I just remember it was something they came and sprayed us when we we're inside the plane with chemicals. And to this day, I say, if there's anything crazy about me, it must have been those chemicals. I, well, I don't know what was going on, but it was cheap, which is why I took it, you know, the crazy adventures. But that's when I got out of Afghanistan and I did the documentary and news was changing. You know, the world was changing in the way we covered news. And I felt like, am I really making a difference? Because I wanted to go back in country and do the next story. And my news management at the time said, you're not going anywhere. That was too dangerous. You're going to stay here and cover car chases and crime, you know, like you always do. And I remember I said, if I can't cover the war, then I'm going to go cover spas, you know, like I'm going to go travel and I'm going to do something different. And that's, I quit. I literally didn't think about it. I never thought of quitting. I love my career. I walked out, obviously I'm out of a war zone and probably not 100%, you know, um, but I was so passionate. I wanted to go back and you can tell me that's why I'm talking, you know, just telling the story just like comes out of me. And I remember calling my mom and saying, I just quit. And she's like, your job? Cause you don't quit in TV news. Cause it's really hard to get these jobs. I'm like, no, I quit my career. I'm done. And it was just like that. I didn't talk with friends for months and with about wine, about how I didn't love it. I, I loved it till I didn't. And it was that breaking point where I was told, I thought I got to go back. And then somebody, you know, there was new management by the time I got home and I was told I couldn't go. And I'm like, no, I have something to say. I can make a difference, but I don't feel I can now in this current situation, but I can go cover travel and use travel as therapy. And so I came up with that idea and decided I'm going to do places to go based on what you're going through in life. If you're stressed, go here. If you're healing, go here. If you're trying to connect with your family or someone, go here. And I'm going to do like back in the day, Dr. Phil, Oprah, the travel channel all rolled into one. So I got this idea and I'm like, 
okay, this is what I'm going to do. How am I going to do this? You know, how do I brand myself from war correspondent to travel girl? And I got a thought, okay, I'll do a book. So I Googled how to do a book treatment. I remember I sent it out over holidays and I got calls over a holiday weekend, loving the concept of travel therapy. So I got an agent, which as you know, is so hard to do. Right. Like that would never happen. I mean, I tried for so long trying to get an agent for fiction and no one had touched me, you know, but this was nonfiction, a little bit different. And I had a different story to tell. And so then I started doing travel content, you know, where I, this was before Instagram. I know, hard to believe. This is before there were anything called influencers. You know, we didn't have brand ambassadors. Very few people, you know, it's funny, my travel therapy six, seven years later became very vogue when everyone decided to quit their jobs and travel the world and be on Instagram, right? It's, it's kind of like what I was doing. I'm like, stop it. You know, wait, that's just supposed to be me. But the world changed. And that's a very, very long answer to how the transition. And it was while I was doing my travel show that unfortunately I had to get a surgery and they said I couldn't travel for three weeks and it was right around the holidays. And I don't sit still as you can tell Margaret. And I was like, I got to do something. And I'd always wanted to write a screenplay. I'd always wanted to write something. And I thought, you know, I was feeling pretty down. Um, it, you know, it's, I don't talk about it very often. And but I had um, skin cancer, which you know, a lot of people have basic, but mine was aggressive. And it happened to be right here. And I had it one here. So one of the times I had stitches down the middle part of my, you know, nose taken off. And, you know, you're on TV, you're like, this isn't cool. And so what I did is both I had two surgeries, two different years. And each time I had a surgery and had three weeks is when I wrote one of the movies that came out. So I wrote my first movie, uh, spec script, when I was laid up and couldn't do anything else. And then I'm watching Hallmark, I'm researching, which I tell people to do. And then when I got another, um, unfortunately had another um, cancer that I had to get taken out, I wrote another movie. And those are my first two movies. So I, I've kind of, I think the war helped me and the journalist helped me to turn adversity into something positive. I've seen the worst of the worst. And I thought, how can I use any of that that I've learned and maybe inspire and empower and at the end of the day, I got so tired of going to like, you know, the family parties or cocktail parties and the, what do you do? Or what was your story yesterday? And I tell them some horrific story I'd covered and they're like, yeah, no, no. And now I'm quite popular when I say, I write Christmas stories. Oh, we love those, you know? Yeah. So it was definitely a, a big, a big change, but every single thing I did as a journalist and as still doing travel has led me to where I am now. So it's a long journey, but I, every day I'm grateful for it. There's so many hard days still, don't get me wrong, but I'm very grateful. Well, how do you have the energy to do all this stuff? Have you always <laughs> been energetic? Yeah. Uh, yeah. My mom, I have to tell the story. My mom loves to tell it's out there in the world. Um, she said, cause some people think, is this just you because you're on? Do you drink coffee? I don't do drugs and I don't drink caffeine. I gave up caffeine about 20 years ago. It never really did anything for me, but apparently I was born this way as Lady Gaga would say. But my mom said when I was like two, two or three years old, I forget, she was at the grocery store and I'm in the little cart, apparently chatting away. And a lady in the checkout line turned to her and said, does she ever stop talking? And my mom, who's pretty quiet, said only in her sleep. And it's, that's, that's the story. So my mom said, I started talking full sentences. I started walking at seven months. I started talking full sentences. It's, she has this baby book. That's a sentences I saw for the first time. And it was hilarious. It was like, you know, are you kidding me? Was one of the first things I said, not mama, dada, are you kidding me? I, which I think I'm going to bring that back. I know. So I just think that, I don't know the energy it's, it's legit. It's real, but there, there are gears where I'm either this, which is my natural way of being, but when I'm, or I'm a one. So I say I'm a one or 10. I haven't learned that middle gear 
You right. know, um, I don't meditate. I don't, I should, I'm trying, like, I'm listening to the daily calm at, you know, that app, you know, I'm like, okay. And I'm like, Jay Shetty has the, this little, um, kind of little bit of wisdom, which is perfect for me because it's on this app and it's like seven minutes. So it's just good for my attention span, right. but that's what right. I do. I get up early. I try to take a walk and then I just dig in and put that energy on the page, whether it's a novel, whether it's, you know, a movie audio projects that I've just started. I just try to harness it because God gave me this for some reason, besides right. talking nonstop. I'd like to try to tell stories that are going to help people and, and bring some joy. That is truly my goal. It sounds corny, but it's the truth. <laughs> no, but that's what your book is like. But you just skipped over a lot of details because I asked you how you got into writing um, these Christmas stories, but oh, well, I don't yeah, even know where true. you worked. I mean, okay. So where did you, because you're from the West coast, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. And have you ever worked in Illinois? I mean, I'm in. Oh Illinois. yeah. Oh, this will be fun. Oh, goody. I get yeah. to tell the details. I mean, what is your, what is your journey, your media journey? Yes. Well, my, so it's fun. I was mentioning when I was little, I kind of decided this is what I wanted to do. So I think I was 12 when I started researching colleges and it was, I'm old. So it's back in the day where I'd have things like on the wall and decide where to go. Now, again, remember, don't have any money, you know, so this is going to be challenging. I was a good student. But I decided I wanted to go to Cal State Fullerton. I was in Washington, north of Seattle. And I said, I want to go to this school. And while it was very affordable, if you lived in California, because it's a state school and they have state funded, it's you know very affordable. If you're out of state, it was like, I remember it was like $28,000. I think it was more than my mom made as a public school teacher, you know, or in, in that range, you know, it was, it was a lot. And so there's no way I could go out of state tuition, but I was determined to go to this school. So I went to my school counselor and said, junior year, how do I do this? So there's only two ways. You either graduate here in Washington and you go to LA and you waitress or do something for a year to get residency. And so you defer, then you get into college or you find a way to go your senior year of high school. So you are a resident. And when you apply for college and I'm like that one, I didn't want to wait. I have no way I, you can tell from talking to me 10 minutes, that's not happening. So I found a family with his help. He actually knew somebody that was a family member, you know, and they needed a nanny. They had two young boys and they were supposed to just be more of a tutor because their kids weren't, you know, really ambitious. Let's just say that's what I was told. So they thought if they were around me and my energy, they'd pick right. some of it up. They were little, like eight and 10 years old. And I it was in Calabasas, California. So when I tell people I graduate Calabasas High School, nobody knew it back then. Now people know, oh, Justin right. Bieber, you know, or they know people, Kardashians or whoever lives there now. But I always say, I graduated Calabasas High School, but I was a nanny. You know, I, I did not drive one of the Merce many Mercedes that, you know, were at the school. But because of that, I, I did exactly what I said. I had the goal. I left home at 17. And again, only child, didn't really have anybody, didn't know anybody in California or really anywhere. And I did that. And then I went four years to Cal State Fullerton and I did a double major in communications, broadcast journalism for the reporting. And because I wanted to do this third world country and, and you know, kind of get out and tell more cultural stories, I did a second major in sociology. All of my counterparts were doing poli sci. You know, that's kind of what you do, but I didn't want to have anything to do with politics. I was trying to get away from all that stuff. And oh gosh, especially now, you know, and I'm like, no. So then I got my first job in Billings, Montana, and it took me a year. I'm after I graduated, I tried. You send out resume tapes back in the day. Literally, you know, it was impossible to get jobs. People were, you know, on-air reporter, on-air anchor, trying to get in the small break into the small markets. So I moved back home and worked in a little mom and pop grocery store and was the cashier 
And my, it was my mom's um, boyfriend at the time, long time, you know, partner, boyfriend, he owned it and they never could find anyone to work. And it was just in a teeny town out in the middle of nowhere. And so I ran the store, you know, there, I was the only one in this, it was like a little, I'm trying to think of what it would be just really, really a little mom and pop. And I, every day sent resumes, you know, every day, you know, I'd go home and I'd, you know, try to research and I was going to get that job. So I got my first job in Billings, Montana, but it only lasted six months because it turned out the company at the time, let's just say my communications law class came in good. I, I was calling in six months into my first TV job. I was calling my instructor who was a lawyer in my communications law class to go, I don't think this is right. And he's like, it is not. So I was in Montana, Idaho, Minnesota, South Dakota, Utah, Texas, Boston, Mass, Texas, Arizona. And that's when I got out of news. Okay. Wait, wait. And I was a White House correspondent briefly um, uh, at the White House when Lou Dobbs was at CNN. They called and asked me to fill in for somebody. And so I think I was in DC six weeks covering, you know, all around Washington, D.C., kind of like the White House type of stories. So that was something, let me tell you. But I was covering like kind of the story of the night, like bigger issues, not this senator versus this senator. It was more like invasive species. There's a new bill. You know what I mean? And illegal immigration. And I was covering smuggling. And because I did a lot of that in my crime reporting, kind of that, um, you know, those type of humanitarian issues is what I specialized in. So that was interesting. You were talking about you're working in the store, you're running the store, and then some guy told you you should get out of it? Well, no. I mean, I, I thought I should get out of it. No, what I was saying is after I was working in the little grocery store and I got, then I got my first job in Billings, Montana, my TV job. So I get in the car in Washington State, drive to Montana. You know, I'm all excited for my $9,600 a year job. I finally have broken in. I'm going to be a reporter. And everything about that was wonky. There was no real news. There was the public affairs show and they were going to have me host that and there was going to be news coming. But long and short, there was a lot of things going on. I was right out of college. I covered, you know, crime and I mean, I'm pretty legally in tune and there were just some things that didn't seem right. So I called my college professor that, you know, I just graduated not that long ago and said, hey, I'm concerned about these issues at this TV station. He's like, yeah, you have a good a right to be concerned you know, um, I would leave. So I did. So then I moved back home again, right back to Washington, where it took me another seven or eight months to keep looking until I got my next job. But during that time, because I was so disenchanted, finally got my job in my dream, you know, what I'd worked since I was 12 years old to do. And then all of these shenanigans happened. And so I decided there was an application for the CIA. They were interviewing people for the CIA. And I thought, you know, and it was, I won't go into all, I can't go into too much, but let's just say that I was a good fit. And so I went through the process of applying to be a CIA operative, which otherwise known as a spy. And so I, you go through this huge long process and I kind of remember one of the lines was, well, you can report for a TV station or you can report for the government and help us get information. And a lot of what they were doing is putting reporters or people that were writers in different places around the world. That was their full-time job. That's your cover. But then on the side, you're doing your other work. And I really was, I was all in. I want, remember, I wanted to travel. I wanted to be a foreign war correspondent. I wanted to learn anything and you get to learn another language. You know, I mean, I'm like, this is like, I'm good. I'd rather report and, and do something that made a difference. That was always my calling to make a difference. And it was right where, you know, the kind of getting to the final of the program 
And all of a sudden it shifted the part of the world that they wanted to send me to, which like, I can't say, but you could kind of figure out back in the day, uh, the shift changed from more, you know, Eastern Europe type places to Middle Eastern type places where the new concern was, and I would not fit and women in general would not be able to blend as easily as I could have in Eastern Europe. You know, so I didn't get that opportunity to be in the CIA, but I always wanted to. But what was interesting, I did it as well, thinking, well, I'm never going to make it through, but I'm going to learn about the process. And I might put that in a book someday or, you know, everything to me is like material, I'm like bring it on. And it was interesting. And, you know, this is not none of this is proprietary you know, information. This is out there of a million people that have done similar things you know, to myself on this. But when they say they do a background check on you. They're not kidding. Like they go back to your first grade teacher. I mean, they, they go way back, you know, because it's all these mental evaluations, psychological, they're checking everybody. So if you have any dirty laundry and you're thinking of joining the CIA, I would just say, don't bother because they're going to find it there. You know, you so just, I'm just, that's my little tip for anyone watching tonight. That's thinking that, but I learned a lot. And then ironically, fast forward, as I, you know, went into my career and did get a job in TV news because I was so gung ho as you were saying, I would get the first story of the night. You know, it used to say when it bleeds, it leads. So usually the first story of the night, that's the one it's competitive. Whoever starts is the lead story, right? That's the big deal. But it's almost always the worst story, the terrible shooting, the terrible fire, you know, it's the crime. It's, you know, the worst leads. And so that's how I got pegged. You know, I wanted to do these humanitarian. I think I would have been really good as a morning talk show host where I was still doing news and, and trying to do things like give back, you know, like an Ellen or an Oprah. I'm not comparing myself, but you know, that type of content that was feel good. I want to give away a car, but mm. no, I'm standing on the sidelines in all of these places I'm moving up and I'm always a crime reporter and I'm always investigative. I'm always undercover, but I'm doing the worst stories. And I worked with the CIA and I worked with the FBI and I worked with Interpol and I worked with, you know, I would go undercover on drug raids. I spent time in um, Texas on death row interviewing, you know, death row inmates. What a funny story when you talk about that transition, I remember telling my mom. So, you know, I'm single and I had just spent time on death row doing, you know, there just so much <laughs> going on there. And one of the inmates, had sent me something when I got back and it was a Christmas card. And when I opened it, it was a tooth and it said all that I have to give you. I wanted to give you a piece, something like I wanna give you a piece of myself, all that I have to give you. This guy was a murderer, a serial killer. And I'm just like, and so of course, you know, I tell my boss who calls the you know warden and you know all of this, how he got it out because they're not allowed to do that, of course but he did, you know, type of thing. But I remember telling my mom and she's like, do you have to be a crime reporter? Can't you cover the medical beat and meet a nice doctor? Do you have to have serial killers sending you gifts in the mail? Yeah, there we go. So is it any surprise that after this very long journey, it seemed to escalate? Our world seemed to get more messed up, or at least I got better at finding the stories that were even more messed up. So every day, you know, you're, you're bringing that in. And I liken it to, um, if you were a detective or you're an EMT and God bless you, everybody out there, you know, people that work on the front lines and soldiers, they, how do you do it? How do you see that every day? How do you do it? And, you know, as a crime reporter or any of those stories, I'm right there with them. You know, um, maybe my fingers aren't in the hands of people, you know, who are passing away, but I'm the one that has to knock on the door after and say, I'm sorry, 
so-and-so or so-and-so you've lost, but may I come in and talk to you? I'm going to do the story for the news, you know? And I had to still do the door knock, you know? And they always sent me, always sent me. I mean, there were other reporters. And were they, they were all local stations? All local stations. And then when I was in, um, at NBC, you know, I, I moved up each time I was getting, you know, moving up the food chain. Like I lived in Twin Falls, Idaho. Billings, Montana, Alexandria, Minnesota for any, I love it. If anyone's watching, which was funny. Cause I kind of was told I'm working at like, you know, this top station called KSTP, which is in Minneapolis. So this is a big market, right? You know, I'm like, woohoo. but I was actually in the bureau, <laughs> you know, the little baby bureau. I was working for the big TV station, but I would do these cutaways that were like, I'd anchor them, write them, produce them. And these little cutaways that were nine minutes for the people in the other the outer areas of the twin cities that they would see me as their anchor you know so i always thought oh i almost you know was at the big time but my big break was when after i got out of bosnia when i was in utah which was still a pretty you know when you were in bosnia who were you reporting for it was an nbc station ksl in salt lake city utah and i was the first female crime reporter in salt lake city too that was challenging you know that that whole yeah, I love I love all the places I've been for different reasons. And I was a skier and I worked the night shift. So I'd love to go ski like a half day and then work the two to 11 p.m. You know, the five, six and you know 10 o'clock news is, you know, what we do. But yeah, so Salt Lake City, Utah was, you know, where I was when I went to Bosnia. So and then I got my big break to go to NBC in Boston. And I was a weekend anchor. Was and how did you get there? Did, did you send a demo tape or what did you? How did oh, you- every time. Are you kidding? Yes. And, and it's kind of funny because Margaret, we talk about in, um, and for those watching that don't know, Margaret and I met because we're both in the Writers Guild of America, very proud members of the union. And they do a thing called First Fridays every Friday. Yeah, we're all Jim needy. Arnoff, yeah. Who, and one of those needy like, people. No, you're not needy at all. <laughs> But Jim Arnoff is like a saint because he's done everything. He teaches, he has been an agent, he's been at CAA. You could drop all these names for people in the business, you know, but he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of the facilitator and he jumps in, you know, too, with his words of wisdom. But that's, you know, that's how we met, you know, which I just think is so organic. And I wished I'd had a First Fridays mentor type group my whole life because right. it certainly saved me during the pandemic. That is you, for sure. And you did give us a shout out in your latest book. And I have to yeah, give you a shout perfect. out for taking the time to do this live stream, but you read the book in two days, which yeah. I love. So it's called Love Always Christmas. And I did, and I tried to read it in class and I started tearing up because I've had a really rough year, but I was talking, of course, the acknowledgements in a, in a novel is to thank people that have got you there along the journey. And I said, I was talking about um, the lawyers and I said, I couldn't do what I do without my expert legal gladiators, attorney Neville Johnson and Kim Swartz and to the Writers Guild of America East and Jim Arnoff's First Friday's crew. Thank you for continuing to create empowering programming and a positive, safe place to learn and share. It has meant the world to me. And it really has because, you know, as a content creator and just the stories that I told you, as a reporter, I was always out in the field creating content, creating news, you know, not creating, reporting the news. I I did not create the news. When that started happening, I left the industry to be clear. Um, But in all seriousness, every day I lived in a live truck and I would be wherever. If you would be dispatching me, Margaret, you know, you would say, okay, there's a fire. Karen, go there for live at five and six. Okay. Now, Karen, we need you to move over here where there's, you know, been a murder or some other horrible story. And I lived in the truck with my photographer or editor, depending on, you know, where we were going and what we were doing. And now when the pandemic happened, I went from being out and meeting people 
and leaving the TV news world to doing a travel show where I've traveled to 68 countries to being locked down during the pandemic. And it was so hard for so many of us. And I lost a lot of people. I based in Manhattan and family members. I mean, it's just been a lot. So for anyone watching out there, you know, I'm with you and how hard it's been. And I'm still recovering from it. I still feel very isolated. You know, that life is different now. You know, I'm still not up to traveling like I was, you know, because I have other issues that are keeping me, you know, a little bit more settled at the moment, as <laughs> settled as I can ever be. But that's why writing's an escape for me. You know, being able to write this book and to be able to work on the screenplays and this new audio project is really, I write fun, uplifting content, but I think Jim said it best in our class. He said, you know, careful what you pick to write about because you're going to live in that world for a couple of years. And so let's say I picked a, a world of crime because I know it. And they say, write what you know. Well, I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in that sadness. So I write the world I want to live in. If, if a little fairy came down and said, Karen, I'll grant you a wish. I'd have Christmas every day. I'd do Groundhog Day for Christmas in a good way. Back to your TV things. I just want to make sure. So you covered basically crime and you covered, of course, the war eventually, you know, some wars and you didn't really cover um, more happy kind of stories. No, as a matter okay. of fact, it's look at me. I'm like, no, if I had, I might have stayed in a little bit longer. What happened is in the news business, you get pegged. So oh. I was that lead reporter. So I got the hardest stories. And I remember sometimes I get to fill in because a lot of times you're a, a reporter on the street and an anchor sitting at the desk. The anchors made three times more than the reporters. I like the idea of being without with people, but I wanted money. I needed a couch. We talked if, if you're just joining us, right? I talked about I didn't even have a couch when I was 29 years old. I was like, I need a couch before I turn 30. You know, I was tired of the struggle. And so I said, I want to be that, you know, I want to be that anchor person. And so, you know, you'd apply or you'd try, but I, and they'd let me. And then there were the weekend anchor shows that were like those talk shows that were like two hours and you do cooking segments. I'm like, I want to do it. And they would never let me do it. Why ever. is that? They're like, no, Why no, you're that? our crime girl because I was hard news. Okay. I wasn't the fluff girl. I look like it, but I wasn't the fluff girl. You know, I was the one hard news. No, no, you got to go out. We need you for that. And uh, we're not going to have you stir up cookie batter. And that's why, you know, it's like when I left TV news, the very first thing I said I wanted to do, I wanted to travel when I was creating my travel therapy, you know, concept. And I went to Africa for a month because I said I always wanted to volunteer in Africa. I had never been to Africa. I'd never had more than five days off for 20 years. I mean, it was a lot. And I, I never went home at Christmas. I, I just wrote about that recently. Um, I didn't get to go home because I was the reporter. Someone has to be on. And I always felt the people with families should get to go home and be with their families. And I was single. And so when I went home, I'd always go home New Year's, that New Year's and take my time off. First of all, it was greater. It was good for airfare. It wasn't as crowded. It wasn't as crazy. And so my family to this day, we celebrate usually the first Saturday after Christmas. And it works because, you know, even though I have a very tiny family, if people are doing things, they can do it with their own individual spouses or whoever on Christmas. And then our little mini family can get together after the first of the year or right before the first of the year. So people say you must have had the most amazing Christmases because the way you write your movies and your books, they're magical. And I mean, I definitely was blessed and had, you know, had love and all of that, but I didn't have those Hallmark type Christmases. It's why I wrote them. I mean, it took me a little of self-therapy to go. When someone asked me that, I'm like, well, no, actually it was kind of the opposite. Like I always dreamed of sitting around with a family and, and caroling, going caroling and all those things. I didn't get to do that. 
I did have the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It was a rough, it was one rough year and my mom didn't want to go. I think it was right after the divorce. My mom, if she's listening, sorry, oversharing. But I was young. I think I was, you know, six or seven when my parents got divorced and my mom was sad and I wanted a tree because I've always been Miss Christmas. My birthday's a week before Christmas and decorating the tree is my favorite thing. And she wouldn't go. She was sad. So I went outside and chopped off a branch of a tree with an, I remember with this knife, and brought it in. And my mom is just like, and I wrapped it with a blanket and put it in the tree stand. Exactly. Well, guess where I learned it? Charlie Brown Christmas tree. So yeah, that was our Charlie Brown, put the ornament on and it literally did fall. I mean, it was textbook. So I think in my mind, I was writing these stories way before anyone's actually seen the stories. But now when you were doing crime, what kind of crime exists in these places? Because I live in Chicago where crime is like, no, no joke. Really? What kind of what kind of crime? You don't even want to know. Oh my gosh. Some of this, I mean, I can't, I, I start telling the stories and people are like, well, let's, okay. I'll do a, a pretty rated, you know, not too crazy of one. So this is a funny story in Salt Lake city. Um, there was a prostitution ring that was going on nationally and the stops were Las Vegas, Salt Lake, and I believe LA. So it was this prostitution triangle. And it was always fascinating in Salt Lake City because, you know, it is a, you know, a lot of Mormons live in Salt Lake City. I'm not Mormon, tons of friends that are. Um, And so people just think just like if you're in a place that have a lot of Christians or a lot of Jewish people, like because it has such a, you know, um, spiritual, religious, that it's going to be this happy place. But, you know, everywhere has problems. And what I have found sometimes um, that when you're at a place that, is um, strict, you know, the stricter that when someone goes bad, doesn't matter what religion, I'm not saying Mormons or anything like that, but someone goes really bad, right? Like when they go, they turn, it's not just a simple thing. So the kind of things that I was having, you know, for instance, you know, in Salt Lake were, were crimes that I would never, you know, even imagine, but one that was kind of funny to show you where my mindset was, I was fairly new and I was going to get to go out and sting. They were going to do a prostitution sting and I was super excited. So they had set up cops, you know, that were going to be the girls and there was going to be this whole sting. And I got permission to do a ride along and to get this whole thing. It's a national type story. I'm like, this is going to be great for my resume tape. Mm-hmm. So I remember I had to get special permission, but because the, um, the police guys that I was going out with the detective said, well, Karen, but we go early. Are you going to be able to get your photographer? I mean, you know, we have to go at like two 33. I'm like, Oh God, you know, cause middle of the night, they hated paying overtime. Right. So I go to my boss, I do my whole pitch, why this is so important. And maybe this can go to the network. You know, they always liked it when the local news story could be brought up. Right. So I'm like, this could be big, you know, and this, we're the only ones that are getting this access. So I did my whole sales things. My photographer said, you know, he'd do it. We wouldn't even take overtime. You know, we were so silly. What what in the world was I thinking? Um, But anyway, so we do it and it's like the day before and I'm, you know, I'm calling, like we get the permission to go and I'm calling the police detective getting it all set up. And I actually think it was that day. I think it was like noon and I'm calling him like, okay, where do we meet? You know, at two 30, like, are we going to the station? And he's like, well, if you want to come now early, we can do some debrief. I'm like early. I go, it's noon. You know, uh, I, I can't get my photographer now he's working the night shift. And he goes, well, we're leaving in an hour and a half for the sting. When he said two 30, he meant two 30 PM, okay. not AM. And that's what he meant by early. And I'm like, well, what, who does a prostitution sting? He goes, because these are businessmen. Once businessmen go home, they can't leave. They do this on their lunch break. Wow. 
Right. And that was a turning point where you say, what kind of crimes? I just remember that was like, you know, but the crimes on, on the southern border. I mean, I did a lot with illegal immigration, which is why back in the day when Lou Dobbs was at CNN that I got the call to go and cover illegal immigration and other you know different issues. Wait, so you're working but, for a local station and then CNN contacted I was. You. Yeah, because I, I always wanted, I always thought bigger, um, meaning if I'm on the six o'clock news, the lead story, I try to take a national story and localize it because we had to enterprise our own story. So every day you had to come to the table. What, who, what were your contacts? And because I was the lead girl, I had to find what was going to lead that whole newscast that day. That was my kind of, you know, I'd pitch just, you know, that's probably why I'm not afraid of pitching, Margaret, when we talk about, you know, yeah. pitching to Hollywood. I don't care. I'll send it. If they don't like it, it doesn't hurt my feelings. Yeah. I had to pitch every day. Okay. stories, you know? And so I would pitch a story and then I'd be, okay, you got a photographer, you know, you go, you get this done and, and all of that. But I would try to find like, if it was a national story on water, like water pollution nationwide, there is this shortage. Then I would go call local. Do we have the problem? How is it impacting us here? So we'd come out of national news with this big story and we'd even use like a clip like nationwide and here in Texas, this is how we're being impacted. Well, because I did that with illegal immigration, I'd always take the big story and localize it when I'm living in Texas. Hello, you know, right? I could go down to the border where it was happening. They would always get picked up because you've got people in New York and you got people, you know, LA, not as much, but New York, like the CNNs, like the Lou Dobbs, they wanted the content, you know? And so I did all these stories hoping to get picked up because you hope that if you're on you, they take your story and you're on you, maybe you'll get a job, you'll get the call, you know, the call up. It's like being in the minor leagues of baseball, the farm league, and you get the call up to the majors. You know, that's how I felt about it. So I always was also crafty. I was always looking for the stories. It could be national news, right? You know, um, and those are the ones that interested me. I always said, if Johnny shot Sally, uh, nobody cares. I mean, of course, sorry to Johnny and Sally's parents and everyone impacted, but that's not the story. The story I would look at, that'd be the lead. Johnny shot Sally. That's the lead. Karen Shaler is on the scene to find out while gang violence in this neighborhood is up 300% what's happening. Wow. So I would find a point of a, a, a story. If there's a huge fire, that'd be the story, of course, breaking news and what have you. But then it'd be like, why is arson on the rise? Why does it take arson investigators five weeks to do something that would take two days in another city? You know, those are the kind of things I would was, do. Was that typical though of reporters to do that? I don't know. I, I mean, I, it's hard to say. I mean, coming from, I was so in my zone, but I did have bosses that said, kind of like wind her up and let her go. You know, they said I was like a wild horse and they, you know, I'd come into the meeting and they'd go, you're like a wild horse. Sometimes you felt like I had to corral you and that never worked. And because you, I delivered, they let me go. I got to where I didn't have to go to the meeting, which was awesome because I was impatient. I'd have this story at 7am. I didn't want to sit around and Chit chat and eat donuts till 10 30. I had to be live at five, six, and 10 with new stories. I wanted my photographer and I wanted to go get my story. So I finally kind of, but I earned it over many years. You know, you've changed places and people kind of knew, but that's also why I couldn't get on these morning shows. They wouldn't let me. And that's like any job. Everybody watching would know that there's golden handcuffs. You know, you want to do one thing, but you do so well. I bet you even have that, Margaret. I bet there's you do what you do so well, and maybe there's something else you want to do, and they're they're not going to pick you because they you're too valuable doing what you're doing. So mm -hmm. I always say, in my case, I had to just quit cold turkey and say I'm out, peace out. Well, then, what I happened, was like, but what kind of crimes happen in Montana and Idaho? Oh, the same. I mean, I think, oh my gosh, that's what that's what I think people are 
I don't want to say confused about, but you think, oh, in New York, there's going to be so much crime and there's not going to be in these charming little small towns. You know, no, there's, there's crime, there's murders, there's death, there's, you know, stealing cattle, you know, or whatever it might be, but the crimes are still there. You still unfortunately have crimes against children, you know, um, dr drug stings. All you got to do is go to the cops whether it's the um, money laundering, people doing check washing, you know, people that go to your mailbox and take your checks and, you know, do that. They're everywhere. And they go, a lot of the really bad people go to the small towns to hide, right? I mean, it's true. So, because, okay. So I'm in the, cause I'm in a city and, um, you know, some media outlets paint Chicago as this crazy place and that it's much worse than let's say small towns like Mayberry. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is there is, there are bad oh, things yeah. that happen there. Okay. There are. The only difference is to, to what someone would say is obviously in Chicago, you've got a larger population, so you're going to see more. Yeah. But if you did per capita the crimes, it would be very even. There, are, I'm sure there's still some Mayberries because I write about these fictional places in my stories that right. you can go, you know. But but seriously, that's what why the big cities get the bad raps, right? Because they have such a large population. Of course, you're going to have more crime. You have more people. But if you really break it down, you know, sometimes in these little towns, you know, that's where things happen, where people aren't as savvy. And a lot of um, scams, you know, people that are scammed might not be a violent crime, but there's like scam artists, you know, because people prey on innocent people and the kinder and the gentler and sweeter the person is, the more they can become a victim. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And the live stream that Karen and I did was almost three hours. This podcast is an edited version. You can see the video at youtube.com slash Margaret Larkin or on the Radio Girl Facebook page or on Twitter at Radio Girl Pod. And let me tell a story that's, um, because it really was a life-changing story. And because we're right talking about this and about was talking about how police officers and how do you take that content in every day and not just go insane and be super sad or super depressed or anxious. And I never knew I did it where I covered it. I was all in, I covered it and I'd go home and you know, it would be turned off and then I'd do it again the next day and you can handle it until you can't. Mm -hmm. And a really interesting thing happened. I was actually working on a screenplay slash book idea where I was writing it. I even had a title in all of this because it was loosely based on something that happened to me, which most of my work is. And so what had happened is I've quit TV news, real story, and I'm gonna go cover, remember I had a boss and I said, if I can't go back to Afghanistan, I'm gonna go cover spas, you know, very flippantly, but meaning I'm gonna do travel inspiring, empowering stories and that. So I'm actually at one of the top spas, Miraval, which is in Arizona, and it's known around the world. It's this beautiful place and it's holistic and they have all these things. They have, um, you know, wellness. It's just, it's phenomenal. And I'm there. And one of the things I shouldn't even have named it because then they'll laugh when they, they hear this story, but I'm doing this travel story. I have my producer um, at ABC um, out of New York. And so she's with me and she's very zen. She's the one that's going to have the crystals and be chill, completely opposite to me. And I'm me, you know, me. And so I remember they gave me a treatment. There was a healer, a Native American healer. And um, wasn't even quite sure because I was just like, let's go, let's go. I got to do this so I can do a story. And they wanted me to do this. I thought, is it a massage? And they're like, oh, it's a healer. He's world renowned. We definitely want you to meet him. So I'm thinking I'm going in there with a the photographer. They said, well, just go talk to him first. But they wanted me to have the experience, which is what, of course, you would always do. You know, you need to experience it so you can write about it specifically and travel and all of that. 
So I go in not really understanding what's going on and I'll just fast forward to it. But I'm remembering we lay down. So I'm thinking, is this a massage? And he's doing like the stage in the room and chanting. And um, I remember that he had feathers. And I wrote this like in my screenplay where I was like, you know, like feathers in my mouth. And all I'm thinking about is what time is it? You know, oh, I got to go like chop, chop, buddy, whatever you're up to, let's go. Um, terrible. See, I'm making myself look like a horrible person because um, I'm not that way now. So I can share the truth. So anyway, I'm just like, let's go, let's go, let's go in my head. And all of a sudden he starts talking and he says, he says, um, I, I, they're talking. He's telling me, he goes, I'm hearing the voices. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Um, he's like, I'm hearing the voices. They're speaking with me. Um, they're children. And I'm just, you know, I know it like from any kind of like, and I do believe that, you know, I do believe in this, you know, it's just at that moment I was in my type A type 10 self, but he was like, uh, and I've learned to keep my mouth shut. Cause if I say something, then they could continue using that. You know, like if it's a mind, uh, what do you call a fortune teller or something like that at the fe- the county fair or something. So I'm not going to say, you know, anything, but he was like, it's children. It's, a- it's definitely children. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no children. So I'm just zipping it, you know? And he's like, can you tell me, you know, do you have children? I said, I do not. And he was seemed very alarmed, genuinely. He goes, do you, oh, that seems, well, it seems like you do. He goes, well, are you a school teacher? I'm like, I am not. So he names a few other things that would have children. And I'm like, you know, and he said, well, they're here. They're very clear. And they all are saying that I, I cry every time I tell the story, but he goes, they're all saying it's okay. I'm like, and he goes, it's that it's okay. You've done enough that it's okay that you left and it's okay. Cause you helped them. And it's probably the first time I haven't like bald when I say it, but right before I quit TV, besides being in Afghanistan and I, don't like covering, you know, talking about gruesome things, but there was a serial rapist, a very horrible story. And I had to go sit in trials of very young children and hear their horrifying stories over and over and with the parents and all of these things. And there were a lot of crimes against children I had done prior. And it just seemed like they just kept happening. And it was just, you know, it is what it was. And the other things that he said that I won't say, because, you know, to protect privacy of people, but it was what he was talking about. It was clear as a bell. It was those children and they were thanking me that it was okay that I left, meaning I had quit TV news and that I had made a difference and that I had helped them. And that was when I remember sitting up and I just was like, and, and I said, I don't know why I'm crying. I was embarrassed because I was crying there too. I go, I don't know why I'm crying. And he goes, because you have PTSD. And I again had just come out of, you know, Afghanistan. And I was very defensive of that statement. I said, because I knew soldiers with PTSD. I said, I do not have PTSD. The real soldiers have PTSD. I was just a reporter. This, I, you know, no, no, no. And he goes, no, not about the war. And he goes, about your career. And he goes, you, he goes, think of it as a curio, like a cabinet with little drawers. He said, every day you would have the saddest story or the horrifying story. And you come home and the way you dealt with it, you open the drawer and you put it in and you shut it. And you went the next day and you did another story. He goes, this is how EMTs are. This is how doctors are. This is how trauma specialists are. This is how people that work with veterans are. It's so hard. You, but you lock it away. You lock it away. Some people can do their jobs for a year, some for a lifetime. But one day, one story happens just like all the others. And you go to put it in the drawer and all the drawers are full. And when you look for it, they all open and they come at you. And it so resonated with me, Margaret. I was like, because when I quit TV, remember how I said this was a job that I picked when I was 12. I left home at 17 for this career. How did I just quit? 
There wasn't a huge fight. There wasn't a, I hadn't thought about it. I was just done. And I think that's what happened. There was a moment. And since then, I have not watched a full newscast because it triggers. I just can't watch news. I, I get it other ways, of course, to be educated, but I can't watch a newscast because it literally, like my friends think I'm crazy. They're like, you've been in news, it's who you were. But if I walk in a room and a newscast is on, I'm like, nope, can't do it. Because it all of a sudden, all the drawers are open, all the stories, all those horrifying things of 20 years just hit me really hard. And so I think that story is what I kept with me as you know, such a learning experience. And when I went forward to, to travel and doing what I'm doing now, writing novels and everything, I want to remember the pain and I want to remember the people and the voices. I blocked them for so many years and there's still a lot I block, I'm sure. Years and years if I had therapy probably would, would say that, you know, but I don't want to, I, I wrote in one of my stories once and it's, it was, I think my stories are like therapy to me because I learn about myself, but I wrote that when you shut down emotionally, and I was talking about a relationship, but you shut down and you're not going to, you've been hurt by someone and you're not going to let them in because they hurt you. But unfortunately, when you shut down like that, it's not like it's just, I'm just shutting down with my romantic relationship. You shut down with everything. And that's what I learned. Like you can't just compartmentalize. I had shut down. So when I first started writing fiction, I had a really hard time because I didn't want to you have to be vulnerable when you're writing, you know, and you have to really write from your heart or else people are going to read it and be super bored and not connect. I had to kind of open that floodgate that I hadn't wanted to. And I had to be vulnerable and, you know, reviews or if people hate you, you have to be okay. And I think it's why when you see me in Jim Arnoff's class, I'm so passionate about you guys have to go for it. You have to believe in it. You know, you, you have to, you've been given whatever God given talent you are and don't let anyone stop you. You have to go forward. You have to try, you know, you'll never regret trying and, and, and failing, but you will regret never trying and saying, what if I, what if, what if I could have, should have. So I just, I am passionate because I believe that, you know, we only have so much time and we've seen that all of us in different ways. And I don't want to waste it with self-doubt. You know, I beat up myself every day too, you guys, you know, I do. I mean, I don't share on my social media the people I've lost. I lost someone very important to me a week ago. I can't even talk about it. You know, I've lost family members. I don't put that on social, not because I want you to think I have a perfect life, but because it's too hard for me. That pain is something I just can't share. I, I'm not able to do that. I love when people do put it out there and I see the love and I feel like they're uplifted. And I have friends that say my Facebook posts that actually helped me, you know, heal. I'm not that evolved to be able to share but I'm hoping in my writing that I can open up some of these things, open up myself. So when you read my story, Margaret, even if it's like my little Christmas story, that you're going to feel something. And yeah, into that note, this, I just have to share this, this house, I wrote this book is dedicated to somebody, the person that I just lost last week. And she took me, she was in tourism and she took me to this house. It's a real B&B in Fredericton, Canada in New Brunswick. And she took me and we were, I was covering this in travel therapy. And then every time we went back to that area of Canada and did my TV segments, we'd stay in this charming little house that looks like a Hallmark Christmas movie and an inspired Christmas camp. So when I knew what she was battling with a terminal illness, I wanted to dedicate this book to her, not the characters for her privacy, of course, but her, the dedication is in here. And I wanted to use the house that we spent time at together with the permission of Deborah Quartermain. This is the Quartermain bed and breakfast. And so that to me was big. That was a, a big share, even though a lot of people, I do talk about it in the acknowledgements. Um, I don't mention she passed because um, that's still something that's hard. But in Christmas camp, 
that's the Hallmark movie I wrote where I also wrote the book. And it's something that was cut out of the movie. You know, if I met the director and I said, why? There's so many things that, you know, yeah, I saw the that only movie. Thing. That's, a, that's the one I saw, right? That they were rewriting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think so. And that yeah. one, that was so much was cut. I love, I tell people, read the book and watch the movie and you'll see how, because I wrote them exactly the same. I wrote both. But there was a scene, and I hope this helps anyone that's listening, because we've been talking about some pretty heavy stuff. I mean, as we go into the holidays, um, I'm never saying pretend that it's okay that you don't miss someone at the holidays. That's not right. You have to feel what you feel. But I also believe it's a time of year where there's so much joy and there's memories that you can have. And so I said in Christmas camp that the stars in the sky represent the people we've loved and lost looking down on us always and that they're always with us. And for me, that brings comfort. For me, that makes me no matter where I am in the world, I can look up and see the stars and I can feel like that they're with me. That helps me. And I had people that came, I, I created a real live Christmas camp after I wrote the book and the movie. Everyone said, well, we wish there was a real one. So I partnered with the Phoenician Hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we created for 10 days all of the things that were in the movie, all the events from, and we added some like cocktail mixology and we did all of these Christmas themes and we did a night where we went outside and we did the s'mores and we, you know, we had our chairs for the people that weren't with us. And we had a a astronomer bring a telescope so we could honor those and just take a moment in all of the holiday, you know, all of the holiday craziness. So I think that when I write, and this one probably took the most out of me because it was the most, you know, real to me and including some things that, you know, are a little more challenging. But I think that's why hopefully when you connected with the story, that's what I'm hearing from people that that's why they like it because it's real. Yeah. We also say because what you just described, what you went through reminds me of what the main character in your current book is going through. Mm -hmm. And also with Christmas camp, which I saw because <laughs> I was looking <laughs> for your movies on, on, um, on Comcast and it was the same idea. So yes, I know that it's very uplifting and so forth. So. Well, and I think that at the holidays, it would be very, you know, remiss to, we've all lost somebody. And I think the holidays are the hardest time of year, you know, the anniversaries, the birthdays, but there's something about Christmas. My grandma on my dad's side loved Christmas. And so my grandma, who I love dearly, I was an only child, only grandchild. So we were very close and she had been battling cancer. And so it got close to Christmas. And she had said, I am not passing away on Christmas. I don't want you to have that memory. And she got really, really sick. And I got the call. We thought she was going to be fine. So I was one of my big regrets. I know I couldn't have, I wasn't a mind reader or fortune foreseer, but I wish I had been there. Um, I was anchoring the news and, you know, across the country in a different state, because again, you know, it's Christmas Eve and I'm working and I'm thinking I'm flying home after Christmas when I work to see her because, you know, she was doing better. But apparently on Christmas Eve, you know, she took a really bad turn and I got the call. And I know that when she passed, it was exactly 1201. This is a true story. It always makes my little self shiver. 1201 midnight, meaning it was not Christmas. It was now December 26. And my grandpa says the furnace in the house, because she was home with hospice, the furnace in the house went out. It got really cold like the next day. And he realized, oh, he had to have someone come. And the furnace went out at exactly 1201. Wow. And I just, and so I had a choice. I could, for the rest of my life, Christmas Eve could be the worst day of my life and Christmas. But I remembered it. So I said, I remember what she wanted. She didn't want that. So I, I don't get me wrong. It was very hard the first couple of Christmases, but I said, I'm going to have a toast of champagne to my grandma. 
my grandma loved decorating with real ribbon. Like, you know, we didn't have a lot, like it could be a pair of socks, but she'd buy that nice ribbon. And then she'd also iron it and use it the next year. We have to all give it back. <laughs> so you'd get, oh, this ribbon from, you know, how many years ago? But I do that to this day. Now it's easy. Thank you, Costco. You can get that ribbon for nine bucks, you know. But all my friends know that when I wrap with real ribbon, it's in honor of my grandma. That's a memory and something that was important to her. So that's what I try to do. That's kind of the way I write in my stories. I try to honor the people that we've lost, but then remember the memories and try to find ways that you can grow and heal, you know, through that while you're also opening your heart to love because it's hard to find love if you're shut down because of other things in your life. You know, not everyone has great Christmas memories, period. You know, then what do you do? You, then you have to start finding ways to create new memories. Okay. So you got out of, now I understand why you got out of uh, reporting and yeah. then you started this travel show. And then mm -hmm. where was this travel show? How did you do it? Where was it? Shown? Oh, it was so much fun. I mean, and how did you get the still, agent? How do you get the agent? I was coming out of being a war correspondent. I built my brand of almost 20 years of a certain kind of journalist, you know, hard news. We say hard news journalists. So how in the world am I going to go cover spas and food and pretty hotels? You know, um, I knew I had to disappear and kind of reappear as somebody else, which is <laughs> in my mind. So I was living at the time in Arizona because I had been here in Boston. I'd been in Washington, D.C. And in my mind, I was trying to have work-life balance. It was the one time in my life I really was. I realized all I'm doing is working. You know, I'm not going home at Christmas. I'm missing some major events. And so I thought I need balance. So I had moved to Arizona and I worked at a local TV station, which career-wise, some would say market size. Now, I'm not saying it was step-down career because you can be happy anywhere and people like it's so hard to get a job in Arizona because they pay you in sunshine, but it's a great place to live. Yeah. And so I came here and I said, I want to work four tens, four 10 hour days. So I could have Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. I'm going to golf. I'm going to have a life. I'm going to date, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I had been in Arizona. One of the places I won um, my first Emmy was Arizona and I'd never been. And I remember going to this fabulous hotel and it was like winter and it's 75 degrees and they have the tiki torches and people are sitting outside. And I'm like, I would, this is gorgeous. And it was, you know, Arizona is stunning. You know, it's beautiful Scottsdale, you know, in particular where I had gone. So it was in my head, you know, thinking, oh yeah, this could be, you know, this could be really cool. So when I left, you know, my Afghanistan and said, I'm going to do travel therapy. And the way it happened was, so this is fun. This is the moment travel therapy was born. So I quit TV. I think I'm still in shock. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I didn't have a lot of money. So I'm like, not like I'd planned for this. I'm going to quit. So I remember I was at the gym, I was taking a 5.30 a.m. spin class and I didn't know anybody. I, you know, I just gotten, been gone a month um, in Afghanistan. And so I'm in my spin and I'm one girl, I kind of knew, so it's kind of like, oh, you know, and you're getting ready and you know, the teacher's about to start. And I complained about something, some dumb thing on the bike I was getting on. I, do, I just remember I was complaining and then I said out loud, what am I complaining about? I have soldiers I've left in a war zone. And I'm whining about some stupid thing. I was so mad at myself. And I said out loud, you know what? I need some therapy. I need some travel therapy. I need to get on a plane. And I literally said the words travel therapy. And I thought, I'm messed up. I'm not myself. I need to go somewhere and heal. I need to go and get my head on right. You know, those earpieces that are expensive that you get molded to your yeah. ear. I yeah. threw it away. I remember someone going, you know, you could use that for other things, which by the way, years and years doing stuff like this. And I've, been, I've stayed in TV all these years. I could have used that. <laughs> I think it was symbolic. You know, I took it and I walked out and there was the dumpster outside and I just was like, I'm done, you know, and in my mind, what a dumb thing to do looking back on it. But yeah, so it hadn't been very long. And that's when I said, you know, I need this travel therapy. 
And so I started Googling in my head. I, I had this whole thing. My, my brain works as fast as I talk. I thought, Dr. Phil, Oprah, the Travel Channel, put it into one. I can help people pick the trip based on what you're going through in life. If you're stressed, go here. If you're looking for romance, go here. I could see this website. And again, this was, you know, long, you know, long time ago. And so I could just see it all. And I was just like, you know, this, this would be amazing. But then I thought, I want to sell this book. So I put together this idea for these chapters, different therapy and all of that. I had some, I'd done a little traveling. Remember, it was what I loved. It was my therapy. That's how I got this idea. So, you know, maybe a trip a year. And I had, I love photography. So I had some really pretty pictures. And I thought, hey, I could do this more. This is amazing. Because I knew I wanted to go to Africa and volunteer. Like as soon as I quit, it was in my mind. I'm going to Africa. I'm going to finally go volunteer. Nobody's stopping me now. You know, I just felt like this, I'm going, didn't know how, how I was going to pay or anything like that, but I just knew I was going to go. And so I thought, well, I got to sell this book. I got to go to New York. That's where all the publishers are. Mm -hmm. And New York is a really good place if you want to reinvent yourself because, you know, I'm this hard news reporter that everybody knows. So I'm like, that's it. So I sold my car. I knew nobody, nobody in Manhattan, nobody in New York, nobody in the East Coast. My whole family's in Washington. And I didn't have any money because I wasn't making much as a reporter before I left. Because remember, I'm in Arizona. I'm not at a network. I'm not in Chicago. I'm not in New York. You know, I'm just in a local market where they paid in sunshine. And that kind of started the whole journey. And then I had this idea. And the irony was I fly there to go to New York because I want to sell my travel therapy idea to do a book. And then I wanted to do the show. You know, I had this whole plan. But I didn't mention when I was flying there. So I got out of Afghanistan in 2017. Well, it was 2018. No, so it was 2008. And that's when the economy crashed. And ABC, everyone will remember the news media. Everyone was hemorrhaging jobs. So all of, you know, I always thought I could freelance if worse comes to worse. I'll get there and freelance, right? But no, everything fell apart. So I cashed in my 401k that you're not supposed to do. I cashed in part of it and said, well, this is for retirement. And this is, I'm reinventing myself. So it's okay. And it was, a, it was a struggle. I could tell you the journey. It goes on about how I actually applied to ABC. There was a, it was online, you know, it was, again, we're 2008. And I, they were looking for like an online writer for a site of travel. I thought, well, that's a way in the door. You know, um, at, for a short amount of time, I worked at Fox News in the basement writing news. Wow. It was Shepard Smith's show writing news for reporters that I had competed against when I was a reporter. So, you know, as a correspondent, be correspondent, we'd all be lined up reporting and different networks. But now I'm in New York and I'm struggling and I want to keep my travel, my, my, follow my passion, but I need to feed the dream. So I tell people all the time, don't complain to me. I worked every, I worked Monday through Friday, plus every weekend in a basement writing stories for the people I competed against. I'm just like in this little, you know, doot, doot, doot. And it was most embarrassing. Like, I loved sharing the story. I had dated this guy in Texas. I had such a crush on him. And his roommate was a Fox News reporter, a national reporter. But he was just giving me, you know, like always giving me a hard time teasing and stuff like that. So fast forward years later, you know, because I used to, you know, we'd all be reporters together or whatever. Uh, years later, all of a sudden I'm assigned one day and I have to research for the reporters. I have to research and look at their stuff and pull video for them and do that. And I was assigned him. Like he was a foreign person. So I, he was never someone in, that was in the circle usually that I knew of. And I was like, I can't do it. No, no, no. How embarrassing. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to be like the little baby writer for him of all people. And so I tried everything to switch and I talked to the, my boss. Can anyone else do it? I'll do two reporters instead of this one, you know? 
if he ever listened to this, he'd get a kick out of knowing I even cared because of course I acted like it was no big deal. But I thought it was good because it was only my first letter and my last name, you know, and I, the producers do a lot of the work with the writer. So the correspondent is out doing his thing. So it was the producer and me talking. They just knew me as Karen, no big deal. You know, I thought, oh, I escaped. So we get done, everything's fine until I get a call. You know, my boss is like, oh, so-and-so, the correspondent's on the phone, they wanna talk to you. They go, hope you didn't mess up his story. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, and I just remember he goes, Shaler, what are you doing? You know, like slumming and writing for me type thing. I was just like, oh. But the point is, the reason I share all of these, you know, stories is I moved to New York with nothing, see the theme, yeah. and wanted to reinvent myself because I cared about my travel show and I wanted to do it and I was willing to do anything. How did you so get that writing you, gig at uh, Fox News? It's very hard to get. Oh, yeah. And that's actually a really funny story. So remember the book, the travel therapy book. I did travel. I went to Africa, just like I said, I was going to do for a month. And I started traveling for content. The book was almost no money, you know, but I didn't care. I got to travel. And that kind of was where the travel bug even more because I could travel for free. Like they'd fly me there and put me up because they got to be included in my book. This was wait, way wait, before who, like- who's this? I don't get it. Who did this? Just everybody. In my book, I have like 200 different places. So whether I'm in Belize or I'm in Bali, you know, this is how the travel world works. So, you know, you don't make a lot of money as a travel writer, but you travel for free. So but how, do you convince, how do you convince them to give you all this stuff if you didn't have a book yet? Oh yeah, well, it was easy because I had done a little bit of freelance writing for a magazine, but you just reach out and say, hey, I can do it here. I had a website. So back in the day, remember blogging where I would like blog and I'd say, I'm going to do this blog. And sometimes I'd be a travel expert. You know, I was marketing myself as a travel expert. And so that was, but the point is when I had the book, so I got, I got some content. When I had my book, I had to market it. So I reached out to all the TV networks, all and, and I wait, was wait, a but you're skipping over. How did you get the book published? Yes. Oh, so that was easy. Remember, I'm back in Arizona and I have the idea. Right. So I came up with the treatment, you know, like you have to do. And that for people that don't know, you kind of have to say the premise of the book, you have to outline what the chapters are going to be. You don't have to write the entire book like you do in fiction. And so, and you have to write some sample chapters. And I researched agents that would do that type of content. And I just started emailing. Okay. And I had tried before for fiction and had never heard a peep from anyone and was told how hard it was. And so I really didn't expect a lot, but I heard back because it's what I talk about in, you know, anytime someone listens to me, it's really the idea. You don't have to be a superstar, but if you have a good idea and travel therapy is an amazing concept, you know? And so I was like, they said, yes. So the agent reached out, we talked, she loved the idea. So then she then took it and started pitching it. So while I'm flying to New York, I'm like, well, I'll be in New York to take meetings. And she, I, you <laughs> laugh now, people that know, she goes, you do know they don't meet with people. Like the publishers in New York don't, aren't like meeting with people. It's not like TV <laughs> at least, or movies. Yeah. At least not my people, like me. Maybe they're meeting with, you know, top people, but they're not meeting with me. But I didn't know that. I thought if I get to New York, how do I meet people that are publishers? Well, if I'm not there, if I go, to uh, find out where they go and I'll go to a cafe or I'll just need to be around them. I'm certainly not going to happen in Scottsdale, Arizona, you know, so I had to go to New York. And so my plan, so I land in New York and I have a call from my agent that says your book just sold while wow. I was flying. I mean, she'd been wow. trying, don't get me wrong. I'm like, okay, I'm here. Who am I meeting with? You know, I'm super excited. She goes, the one publisher that's in the West Coast in San Francisco. Oh, I'm like, what? No, okay, but I want to. I want to get back to your show, um, the the travel show. Okay. Oh yeah. So you you were able to do the travel show, and then how long did you do that for? I still am. 
You yeah, still are. Okay. I, yeah, I, I still am. Christmas. I mean, okay. it definitely has taken a pause with COVID, of course. And the sad part was, is so I started the travel show and I originally started, I was just writing some online content. And it's interesting the way the world works. I applied like anybody through the ABC portal, which I had not applied like that before. I've been in news jobs where you send a resume, you know, or a, a link to your reel now, but, you know, back in the day, a resume tape, even um, a DVD. Oh my God, how old am I? Um, but all of that said, you know, with this, I had, I'm in New York, everything's falling apart. My plan A, B, and C, I've moved to New York, economy crashes, every, you know, everything's sort of blown up. I'm just like, oh my goodness, you know, what am I going to do for money? And so I'm looking for any job that I can get. And I see this online travel content and I was already doing, I had a few magazine clips when I was still in Arizona because I didn't make any money. And I remember my mom said, well, you know, what are you really missing? You know, you don't have kids, you don't have a big mortgage or anything like that. And I said, well, I can't go to really cool restaurants. I can't travel, you know, cause I wasn't making much. So I thought, why don't I freelance? Why don't I freelance an article? So I'd reached out to some lifestyle magazines and that's what I did. So I had a few, what we call writing clips. So I'm in New York. I applied for this job at ABC. The woman brings me in for an interview and this is for abc.com. And it's just freelance to so just, you know, kick around some ideas. But when she brings me in, the irony is it turns out she was a former reporter and she talks as much as I do. I know, hard to believe, named Delia. I love Delia. And she, we start chatting and it's right before Thanksgiving because something interesting happens here. And, you know, she's like the head, one of the head recruiters, HR at ABC, you know, like ABC. <sighs> and so we start talking. She loves my background. We start talking about travel. She's from Peru originally. You know, so we have this great chat. I noticed a travel poster on her wall. So bottom line, we connected. We weren't even talking about the job. But then in the end, she's like, I'm going to call the head person and called and said, you need to give her a shot. She's really cool. So it was a good example of not going in there. And it wasn't about the clips or this. It was about she thought I would be a good person to work with. I cared about travel. I'd showed knowledge of travel and those and being able to work and collaborate and all of that. And so at that point, you know, I had also heard that there was a travel show, ABC News Now at the time. And so next thing you know, I'm going to be a freelance correspondent on that show. Then I ended up, I'm just fast forwarding so people don't get bored, but I was a freelance correspondent for a little bit and I got paid like almost nothing. You know, like I'd go somewhere for 10 days. And at first you think you have a photographer and you have a crew if I was local. They gave me a flip camera. I think I had to buy my own. It was this camera that came out for a hot minute. If anybody remembers, it was like size of a phone and everyone was shooting like at the Oscars behind the scenes, like big fancy people. So they said, you can shoot it. We don't have a photographer. Economy's crashed. You, you go to, you know, you go to Thailand and you shoot your video. Oh. I was like, in all my years of TV, I respect photographers. They know what they're doing. You know, um, I am not a videographer, but I went, you know, and I remember, and I'm so picky. I got a little baby tripod because, you know, I, I learned really quickly holding this little flip camera looked terrible. So I bought a little baby tripod and I'd put it there and I did this. And, you know, the first ones I still look at, then they would edit it. You know, I would write it and do it. It's called time coding. And then someone back in New York city, fancy pants, you know, would edit it. And these segments then would be on this travel show. I would stand, you know, in the studio and introduce it. Then the host left and I got to be the host. So for about a year and a half, I'm hosting and we'd go to like, we went to Chicago. I have one Wait, in what's Chicago. The show? What was the show called? The one in um, for ABC was called travel now because oh. it was ABC news now. It was that their cable 24 hours, kind of like with CNN when ABC had this cable content. I, I know it was very popular in Disney theme parks because apparently the show aired there. And when you're waiting in line, 
you're stuck. And so people would know me from the Disney theme parks, which I thought was hilarious. And so after I, I so then we started going to like Chicago. And so it would just be a half hour show and it would be me and I'd interview the deep dish pizza guy or I'd interview like one of the top chefs. And so then we went to um, Louisville, Kentucky, you know, so we did different things like that. But what I realized right away, meanwhile, I still had my travel therapy book had come out. That's what I was using as, you know, here, here's how I have travel, I have content, I have places I've been. And when my book came out, I was realizing, you know what, I mean, I need to do my own and own my own content because I'm hardly getting paid anything here. And so then the show, I think it lasted almost two years, but it wasn't at one point I was in, I think I was at four TV stations in New York at the same time working. Um, So I'm working in the basement at Fox news and the way that happened, you asked me and I didn't answer that. So when my book travel therapy came out, I started pitching it to get on to TV because I knew how to do that. And I got on Fox and friends. I did not have an agent. I didn't have any of that. But there was a caveat after I'd met one of the executive producers, they were short writers, like so short, like desperation short. And they said, well, why don't you come help us for this weekend as a writer and we'll get you on, you know, give you publicity when your book comes out. Nice. So I thought I was just going to go and kind of at first they wanted me just to write headlines. And then they're like, well, maybe you can mentor some of the younger writers. But turns out the younger writers ended up mentoring me, not so much in the writing style, but this system, you know, of pulling video and like all this stuff. I had no idea. There was this lovely, lovely um, girl, Monica, who saved me every day. I'm like, how do I get that out of the system? And how do I pull that video? And how do I find me? Oh, my goodness. It was the technical stuff I didn't know. And so, yeah. So when I was there, I'm also hosting ABC's national show making union wage of SAG, which at the time was like $225. So I, I might travel for 10 days, but I got paid the one time I was on air. Oh my God. You know, then I can't eat that. So then I went to Pix11 and said, I want to do, I had all this travel content. I'll do this travel content for them and be a little travel expert. So I was also working there and I was still trying to travel and go to these restaurants and these, you know, I'd fly somewhere for a weekend to get content to try to feed the monster of all the other things I was doing. So I was hustling. So now when you say, wait, you write screenplays, you write books, you have a travel show. And now I started doing audio. I have a new audio multicast project, which is called the Audible Original, which is a nod back to like the 1940s where it has a full cast. So it's written like a screenplay where it runs almost two hours and it's a full cast. And it's the only one that's coming out this Christmas with Audible in this format called Once Upon a Christmas Carol. And I'm giddy about it because I'm now able to tell people that's a whole nother style of writing, you guys, writing for audio. So now I'm doing that. But guess what? If I hadn't have been a hustler back in New York trying to pay rent, working all those jobs, I wouldn't have learned how to, you asked very early, how do you juggle your time? How do you find the time? You know, you stay very focused. And for me, I get up really early in the morning and, you know, knock off these things and just, and I also don't have a life. And anyone looking to write um, for any kind of audio project, when I first got it, I always, everybody knows me. I'm a researcher, probably my background. You know, I didn't know how to write a screenplay and I did. I didn't know how to write a novel. I did. I just researched, researched, researched. And that everything from tips to actually reading the content, you know, and watching and you know, whatever it, it takes. But with Audible, it was hard because these Audible originals are kind of newer, right? These, yeah. these multicasts, there weren't a lot to listen to. But guess where I found them? I mean, anyone in the audio world knows in a minute, the BBC, because they're That's killing true. it 
doing oh, yeah. these originals. Well, they've also been doing multicast. it for, but they've also been doing it for like a hundred exactly. years. Exactly. You know what I mean? And that's where listening to that, I got so many tips. I just did a deep dive and would listen. I go on this walk, you know, and I just listen and I just listen and I learned so much. And it was fun. Like one of the, one of the processes for it, people say, well, how did you go from writing a screenplay to writing audio? I mean, how do you even start? And the way I started is my story idea I had was a movie idea. You know, so when I got the opportunity to pitch, I had ideas and I knew this one would be good. It's called Once Upon a Christmas Carol. And we have classic Christmas carols in it. And there's clues in the lyrics. And I actually wrote an original song. So we got to bring a violinist in and we, you know, to do to score, I mean, these classic songs, but make beautiful music along with this amazing cast of actors. But I knew in my heart, but then I'm like, how do you even do a transition? Right. Like on TV, it's a commercial break. That's easy. But in a movie, you know, there's a transition. But how do you do a vote? I mean, an audio transition. And so I thought, OK, and I, I started thinking, trying to think. So what I did is I went to one of the sites where you would buy if you were a producer, the sounds like sound effects. Right. And I put in Christmas holiday, snow, winter. And all of a sudden I heard like the howling wind. So then I, I literally had 100 sounds and I backwards engineered it to where I knew the story but I had to use the sounds. So it was interesting. So instead of just people talking back and forth, okay, there'd be the tea kettle. Oh, it's hot cocoa. Or, oh yeah, do you want whipped cream? You know, on your, you would hear that or the crunching of the boots crunching in the snow. So that's how I did it. I, I, I fell in love with the sound first and mm -hmm. then found a way to incorporate every sound that I felt felt like Christmas and then wrote a story for it. And it's so visual to me and I'm so visceral about, you know, I'm, I'm from television, you know, all those years as a broadcaster. I mean, I think pictures, that's what I think. I mean, I know a story and if there's no visuals, I don't think it's a great story. I'm like, I need to tell it with pictures. I am so the opposite of what would traditionally be an audio writer, but that's why I loved it because I truly learned something new. And then I be, just became obsessed because the power in it and the sound was such a different emotion. And then it got better in my writing, Margaret. I went back to my screenplays, my movie screenplays and added in some sound hmm. that I wouldn't have added, right? right? But I realized how important it was. And it's just yeah. was so much fun. I am, I, you know, you never have your favorites of writing because everything's like a child, you say, but I really believe it's one of the best things I've ever written. And I am so proud of it. And I'm proud of the cast. And then you didn't even finish that story because you said you're with ABC and then you said you want to do your yeah, own thing, but then I don't I did. know what So happened. now that's what I do now. And so now I own my own content okay. and that's what I started doing where I put together these minute and a half. It's travel therapy trips with an S trips.com is my website. I actually relaunched it in February of this year on Valentine's day. Cause I said, my love of travel. It's the day I, I put it back out in the world. And I was actually in Harbor Island in the Bahamas where I spent several weeks. What I was doing prior to the pandemic, I pick a place in the world. And if I have to write a book or a movie, I want to be immersed in a different culture and try to give myself that quote, travel therapy. And I went to Portugal one year, a tiny little place you'd never heard of. I went to Spain on the coast of Blanca, also a tiny place you've never heard of. Little where villages, do these air you know? though? Where do these air? Um, well, these, uh, those, those were movies that I wrote. I wasn't, I was doing social media for travel therapy, but when my travel therapy um, trips, they aired during, they aired everywhere. They aired in the airports um, and when it was clear TV. So for five or six, seven years, you had them on, on at the airports. But my big home, um, PIX11 was in New York, but my big home was ABC and they would air in local New York during Good Morning America weekend, live with Kelly and, um, and well, it was Kelly and before Ryan, it was Kelly and Michael, you know, it's different people, but Kelly and Ryan, 
and Rachel Ray. And so they would air. And then what I would do is I would have my little time that I would get and it would be a minute and a half. And then it would be, you know, some of times I do longer content and it would be, it was on AOL and some, it was for a while we had, I had Amazon prime, you know, where people could get on Amazon prime. And to be honest, I, I just was, I think I've done 185 TV episodes, you know, and granted they're the shorter and everything was moving full speed ahead for even more partners and doing different things and talking to different people. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And that changed everything for all of us, right? I had a movie about to go and the pandemic hit. Um, I had a publishing deal with HarperCollins, but when the pandemic hit, I had to make the decision. I was switching publishers in the process and I had to make the decision of going out on my own. But the thing is, um, what I want to know is now that you're doing all this Christmas stuff and you have extreme success in Hollywood and- No, I, no take that note. I, I do not have extreme. I have, I've dabbled a toe. I don't know if anyone has extreme Look, you were the first Christmas, but you were the first Christmas movie on Netflix. That's huge. And everybody loves it, please. Everybody go and look up a Christmas Prince and you'll see what I'm talking about. But, and then you have this Audible um, original, which is extremely Thanks. hard to achieve. Excited. Okay. But when you look back and you look back at when you were a reporter, does it seem like a different person? Your life as a Hmm. reporter? Oh, well, my life was different. I think me as a person, I've always been exactly me. You know, like I say, whether I'm interviewing the president, which I've done, or if I'm interviewing the janitor, but my life is a, a 180. I mean, I'd wake up, the difference is I'd wake up every day as a reporter. and It was my job to find the worst story that had happened that night overnight. What's the absolute worst thing that has happened that people need to know about that they literally need to know for their safety or whatever it might be. And now I wake up every day looking for the most positive, inspiring story that I can help make somebody's day a little better, or if they're alone, give them some comfort. So my mindset of waking up for career wise is completely different and it's healthy. And I'm grateful. I still work every day on, you know, it's a good way to wrap up, right? I work every day on work-life balance. We all do. And, but, but I did this tonight, even though there's a million things going on in in your life as well, but I, this is such a joy to share and to talk to you and to talk to everybody. And if there's one thing I said, and all of the things I said that can give someone hope or inspiration, or just be like, okay, that was fun to listen. I didn't know something. Then, then I've done, then I'm happy. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.